Okay, y'all. <clears throat> I think Slim, whatever you had, kind of migrated this way. So two weeks in a row we have, like, voice issues. I'm sorry for that. Um, here's what I want to say. Are you ready for Ecclesiastes? <laughs> I mean, are you ready? Because whether you are or not, we're in it. We're starting it. It starts now. If you would like to discuss more about Ecclesiastes, if you would like to, in homiletics, they will tell you, preaching classes, they will tell us, listen, do not share your sweat from the pulpit in the text. Give the fruit of your sweat in the pulpit. But if you want the sweat, if you want the sweat of the text, I invite you to come on Wednesday nights at 6 to 7. Because we will dive deep into the text. You will get the sweat. We will dig it up. You will interact with it. And our goal during that time is to actually create a culture that Ecclesiastes creates. Honest, gutsy culture of learning to be real in a really wrecked up world. No more um, Disneyland kind of Christianity. But honest, gutsy, roll up your sleeves, joyful, Desperate, yet deliverance, and life, all at the same time, all rolled up into one. So if that's you and you want to investigate more about that and do that with other people, I welcome you to come on Wednesday nights. All right, growing up as a kid, I had two life dreams, two life goals. The first was to play in the NFL. The second was to be a soldier. Now, when you're a little guy, you never think that you can't do both of those at the same time. It just doesn't compute in your mind. My indoor toys were electric football. I cannot imagine those of you that are growing up with Madden. Oh, what I would have given to have Madden back then. Electric football is this little board that you click this thing and it vibrates and you put these guys on it and they're supposed to go straight, but they go in all kinds of different directions and they never run the plays that you want them to run. But that was the closest thing that you had to like being a coach and dreaming it up. You used to sit up in front of the TV and watch a play and then try to do the play. The other indoor toys were G.I. Joe's and Army Men. I had the 12-inch kind, I had the 6-inch size, and I had the 2-inch size, and I had the half-inch size. Every nation was covered, Americans, Germans, Australians, English, Japanese, Russians. I even had Vikings. I had them all. And every day for hours throughout the whole house, epic battles were being fought with unbelievable heroes and just nasty villains, and my stairs were the favorite place that all this stuff happened. Now, my outdoor toys were footballs and more footballs, guns and more guns, but I had two kinds of guns. I had the kind that didn't hurt. They only made noises, lots of loud noises, sighing, you know, lights, all that kind of stuff, and then the kind that did hurt. Just ask my brother Pete. One day we were setting up our army men to shoot the army men, and I just couldn't resist because his backside was right there, and I don't know what happened, but next thing I know, he's jumping over the fence. <laughs> when choosing colleges, it came down for me to the Naval Academy, but I... The SAT and I did not really get along too well, though I did beat my brother, and that's very, very important in this story. And then it came down to where can I go to play football and where can I wrestle? So decisions made. I go to, I go to college, and in college, I start sensing a, a call to gospel ministry. And so I go into campus ministry. But during those early years of campus ministry, there was, this, there was always this deep, almost suppressed what if? What if I'm supposed to be a soldier? Fast forward through seminary and three years into planning Redeemer, three years of being here, 9-11 hits, and a tremendous 
great internal struggle over what my call in life is hitting me like a ton of bricks. Those of you that were there, you knew, but you didn't know. I started having very, very serious conversations with my wife, Nancy, over about what my call is in life. Honey, am I called to be here or am I called to be somewhere else? I started seriously investigating short-track options and in getting into special forces. I was incredibly serious. I was incredibly in turmoil. They were months and months of great internal struggle that God used my wife, family, friends, and other pastors. And he did so in a loving way, and he did so in a gentle way, and he did so in a way that understands me. And through that, God helped me reconfirm my call to gospel ministry. There's this great line um, in a one, It's a Wonderful Life or George Bailey of Bedford Falls. You know, he's struggling with his place in life, right? And he says to his pop, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. I want to do something big. I want to do something important, end quote. Ecclesiastes are for those who want to do something big, who want to do something important. C.S. Lewis, in a grief observed after his wife died, he said, look, it doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist chair or you let your hands fall in your lap. The drill drills on. <laughs> Ecclesiastes is for those of you that know the bite of the drill and that it continually drills on in your life. Calvin Klein, that great cultural savvy marketer, has always had probably at the cutting edge of identifying the changes in the cultural mood. When baby boomers were young, he sold them what? Obsession. As baby boomers got older, he sold them eternity, and now he's selling them escape. And you know what he's selling the children of baby boomers? Contradiction. <laughs> Contradiction. Ecclesiastes is for those of you who feel deeply the contradictions in life. Do you feel the frustrations and the absurdities and the injustices and the chaos and the confusion of life. Ecclesiastes is for you. Do you ever wonder why God didn't just take you to heaven after you became a Christian? Anybody ever ask that question to God or to a friend or even out loud beyond the thoughts in your head? You know, why are we still here when you become a Christian? This world is so hard. Have you ever asked that? Ecclesiastes is for you. Have you, uh, do you try so hard to like, here's the world, and you do all your best to separate yourself from the world. You do so in your family. You do so in your education. You do so in everything. You desperately want to be separate from this world. Is that you? Ecclesiastes is for you. Are you tired of smiling all the time at church? Ecclesiastes is for you. Are you tired of trying to make your life work? Make your Christian life work? Ecclesiastes is for you. Karl Rahner is one of the most influential Catholic theologians of the 20th century. This is what he said. He said, the very commonness of everyday, everyday things, the very commonness, 
commonness of everyday things harbors the eternal marvel and the silent mystery of God. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. During the Christmas season following 9-11, New York's governor then, Rudolph Giuliani, said to the New Yorkers, I tell New Yorkers that they have to learn how to mourn and cry, even while at the same time celebrating Christmas with more enthusiasm. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, in one of her works called Aurora Lee, she says, The earth crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees it takes his shoes off. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is inviting us to a holy life. It's inviting us to a wise life. It's inviting us to a flourishing life, but it's not inviting you to a holy life of your grandparents or parents' kind. It's not inviting you to the holiness of a monastery kind or the victorious Christian life kind. The preacher is inviting you to his kind of holiness. We might say he's inviting you to gutsy grace. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. we go. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot speak it or utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It, is already been, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, if we go over to 12.8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Then go to verse 13. Well, here's the end of the matter. All right, here's my point, preacher says. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the whole duty of man, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, God, we thank you that authority and power and breaking in grace and peace is not found in us. It's not found in the preacher. It's found in your word. And so, Lord, we ask you that you would shine on the page and we ask that you would intrude. You would break in. You would, as Paul says, unleash, release grace and peace upon us. We desperately need it. We are lost without it. So we ask you now, Lord, and we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Do you know what medieval Old Testament scholars called Ecclesiastes? Quote, one of the Bible's two dangerous books. You know what the other one was? What was the other one? Song of Solomon. 
All the sex, man. Sex, sex, sex is all over Song of Solomon, right? Ecclesiastes is the black sheep book of the Bible. Why? Because it's an untidy book. It's pages. It has dangerous pages of darkness, dangerous pages of contradiction, dangerous pages of chaos, dangerous pages of confusion, nightmares, bad dreams, midlife crises. There's been 2,300 years of people reading and trying to understand Ecclesiastes. 2,300 years, and I've got commentaries that are representative of a lot of those years. Here's one thing that everyone agrees on. Ecclesiastes, there is little agreement about what Ecclesiastes means. Everybody agrees with that. After that, there's no agreement. So, is this a life-affirming book? Does it have a positive view of life, or is this a, a deeply skeptical view of life, a negative view of life? Is the writer who calls himself the preacher in verse 1, is he a believer or an unbelieving skeptic, or for that matter, a hedonist, or for that matter, an addict, or for that matter, a materialist, or for that matter, an atheist, a secularist, a humanist? Is he a believer? If he's a believer, is he orthodox? Is he heterodox? Or is he a skeptic? If he's a believer, is he a victorious Christian? Or is he a sex addict and a substance abuser? Is life under the sun life without God? Or is life under the sun a life in a fallen, wrecked world? Which one is it? Is the ultimate message of the book, live a wise life like the preacher, or don't live a foolish life like the preacher? Here's some things we need to know. I'm not going to resolve that for you right now, but here's some things we need to know. If you want to start well in Ecclesiastes, we all have to get on the same page. If we don't get on the same page, you're going to read it the way you want to, I'll read it the way I want to, and maybe we'll find each other somewhere in the book. So let's see if we can get on the same page. First, we don't know why the writer of Ecclesiastes hides his real name and writes under a pen name called the preacher in verse 1. You can see that. Tradition says it's Solomon, but modern scholarship unanimously almost, and that means reformed, that means evangelical, that means everybody, uh, says it's a frame narrator. And what that means is, is that the Israelites are in Babylonian captivity. They are in desperate straits, and so this frame narrator is someone who, who helps Israel. What's Israel's need? They need to see life through the eyes of a wise man. How about the wisest man who ever lived? Here's how in Babylonian captivity and chaos and confusion and darkness, let the preacher, let the wisest man who ever lived show you how to live. That's what modern scholars say. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote A Grief Observed, he changed his name it's a biography. It's an autobiography about how he dealt with the loss of his wife named Joy, but he changed his name to N.W. Clerk and called his wife Joy H. It was after he died that they reinserted his name. He used a pen name. J.I. Packer helps us. He gives us some good advice. What do we do? Solomon, uh, framing narrator, he says, look, whether this means that Solomon himself was the preacher or that the preacher put his sermon in Solomon's mouth as a didactic tool, doesn't concern us. The sermon is certainly Solomonic in the sense that it teaches lessons which Solomon had unique opportunities to learn, and that's the point. 
okay? All right, second. So we good so far? You don't have to know whether it's Solomon or not. You can, you can still hear the message of the book. Second, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It's not... Well, let's see it this way. The Bible carries the water of the Word in different buckets. And the bucket actually starts shaping and is a part of the message. And the bucket becomes this way that the water gets into your heart. So sometimes, if you're like Paul, which we did in Romans, the bucket is just hardcore propositional truth. And the water of the Word's coming through clear argument, stated ideas, powerful propositions. Sometimes the bucket is a story and you got character and plot conflict and you got setting and all the storyline is meant to give you the water of the word. Sometimes it's poetic and it's apocalyptic with incredible images, outstanding, vivid fuels for the imagination. And then sometimes the bucket is wisdom. And wisdom literature is not like other literature. Wisdom literature finds water of the word meaning in the in-between spaces of life. For example, in Proverbs, wisdom literature, there's one proverb that says, don't answer a fool. The one right after it says, answer a fool. Well, what is it? Wisdom lives in there. Wisdom lives in the space between pole one and pole two. Wisdom says, here's how you know when to answer, and here's how to know when you shut up, right? That's wisdom literature. <sighs> Darn, I answered the fool. Shucks, shouldn't have done it, right? Third, wisdom literature presupposes, or wisdom literature builds itself around the fear of God. You can't have wisdom unless your life is built around the fear of God. So then the question is, well, what's the fear of God? Well, in the New Testament, we'd say being filled with the Holy Spirit. We'd say a gospel life. In the Old Testament, they would say a redeemed life. In other words, the, the wisdom literature is not ignoring the rest of the Bible. The, li- the wisdom literature assumes the redemptive, mighty acts and wonders of God in narrative, it assumes that, and it assumes that we are building, an Old Testament person is building their messy life around the wonder and the works of God. It's a redeemed life, that's wisdom. We would say today it's a gospel life. Wisdom is what a gospel life looks like. Fourth, Ecclesiastes is not the ramblings of an unbelieving skeptic. It's the powerful preaching of a man who sees reality. Of a holy man. Of an incredibly wise man. This is not a Disneyland preacher who says, get your best life now. This is a gutsy grace preacher that says, get your real life now. How do we know this? Look at verse 2, look at verse 8. That's why I had us read it. Ecclesiastes is a book about those, whatever's being said in 2 and whatever's being said in 12.8, that's what the book is about. That's the unifying idea. And everything is said in between those bookends is about those two, that, that idea. 
It's a unified story about one big idea. Verse 2, 12, 8, vanity, vanities. Everything is vanity. The rest of the book explains it. The rest of the book applies it. But that's the big idea. It's not the ramblings of topical things like, okay, here's how to raise your children, and here's how to, I don't know, deal with conflict, and here's how to do this, and here's how to have a good marriage. It is a story about everything being vanity. It's the story about a gospel life, a gutsy grace, and a wrecked up world. All right, so let's get into the book. Are you ready? Let's look at verse 2. Again, this, says the same, this thing is said again in 12.8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. One scholar translates it this way. Everything is absolutely, I said, absolutely absurd. Here's the way we're saying it, how we're translating it. It's a mad, mad world from that great theologian, Mad Max. That movie's up for best picture, so I thought it was appropriate. The complete opposite of vanity is found in verse 3, gain, gain. Verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Gain is something positive. Gain is something you're searching for. Gain is something you need. Gain is something you must have. Gain is the stuff you long for. Gain is the stuff that's wired into your DNA and your bones and your heart scream out for it. It's a positive thing. You must have it or your life is meaningless. You must have it, or your life shatters. You must have it, or you cave in on yourself. Vanity, though, is something negative. It's not desired at all. It's the stuff of nightmares. It's the stuff of bad dreams. It's the exact opposite of gain. There are three dark ideas packed into the word vanity. The Hebrew word is hevel. Three dark ideas. Now, what's fascinating, when you look at all the different translations and different interpretations, the word hevel has a circle of meaning that has three dark ideas in it, three. But usually, translators and scholars will pick one, and it's, it's true. But all three need to be there to get the full meaning of what's being communicated. If you take one out and make that one mean everything through the rest of the book, you're like a bodybuilder with no legs. You're a little lopsided, right? So here's the first dark idea. It's, it's, it's this. Everything is tired. Everything is tired. Falling apart. Fading. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. You know what weariness means? Bone tired. It's the kind of fatigue and it's the kind of exhaustion that reaches and goes into the core of your bones and the core of your being. When you take a step, it hurts. Everything is bone tired. And then the preacher gives three great illustrations, three quick ones, right from the natural world. He says, look, the sun's tired, verse 5. It rises, it goes down, and then it does the whole thing all over again, over and over and over, no gain. Then he moves to the wind. The wind is tired, verse 6. It blows around and around and around and around continuously, no gain. 
Then he goes to the streams. The streams are tired. In verse 7, they constantly, picture this, streams are constantly flowing to the sea, but the sea is never satisfied. The sea is never full. The sea is never complete. The sea never becomes itself. It's always short, tired, weary of itself. Now, creation's not only tired, according to the preacher, but we're tired. Look at verse 3. He mentions toil twice. And he mentions toil is as a summary of how we build our lives. It's a, toil is a summary description of every human endeavor and every human relationship and every human activity. Everything we do under the sun, everything that happens in life, he describes it as toil. The word is closely connected with trouble in the original language, so our life could be said to be a troubling toil or a tiring toil. There's no gain, only toil. We're not only tired, it gets worse. We're fading. And this is the one that kills me. I read this and I'm like, please, that can't be true. And then it showed something about me. No one will remember your name Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes. Do you get the picture here? The next generation is in the wings waiting for this one to go. You got the World War II generation. There's not many left. Next generation came in. The war on terrorism generation. The next one's ready to take this one as quickly as possibly can. One generation goes, the other one's just chomping at the bit to get in line and have its place. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Here's the point about us fading. We are not that big of a deal. You are not that big of a deal. The business deal, it's just a business deal. Your career, it's just a career. Success, it's just success. Sex, it's just sex. Physical appearance and beauty is just physical appearance and beauty. Being liked is just being liked. Possessions, they're just possessions. A student ran excitedly up to Eugene Peterson and said, Dr. Peterson, Bono quoted you. And Dr. Peterson said, that's incredible. Who's Bono? (laughs) And you're saying, many of you, Who's Dr. Peterson? (laughs) 
Zach Eswine in his book, Recovering Eden, says, the preacher's point is this, when we die, the sun will rise the next morning. The waters will tide and the wind will blow while other human beings after us will likewise come, take their turn and go. So our worst and best days fade. Our celebrations and our tragedies disappear, end quote. We are not as big a deal as we think we are. Now, here's what the preacher wants to do. He wants to say to you and me, while this is happening, it's almost like a little time out. He wants to say, now listen, there is a hidden joy in there if you hear it. Here it is. You don't have to take yourself so seriously. Relax. Nothing is the end of the world. Second idea. So the first idea is, what's the first idea? Everything is tired. Everything is fading. Everything is falling apart. Now here's the second idea of vanity. Everything is frustrating. It just doesn't make sense. It's absurd. I mean, look at verse 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it could be said, see, this is new? He says, no, it's already happened. I mean, every generation comes in thinking that they're the most unique generation that ever lived. And the preacher says, you're not. It's old news, what you think is new. Life has a frustrating pattern about it. It's like life is in this endless loop of absurdity and you just can't get out of the absurdity Yes, there's new technology. Yes, technology is new. So is Under Armour. So are Cheerios. So are Walks on the Moon. And so is HDTV, which I will enjoy tonight with the Super Bowl on. Yes, this stuff is new. But the human heart is not. The struggle of relationships are not. The endless, absurd Maddening injustices of the world are not. The desire to be loved is not. The hunt, the quest, the passion for meaning, for an identity, to not be a loser and a failure is not. Weather patterns, according to the skeptic, or not. What would he say about climate change? I really don't know. I don't know, so I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I'm moving on. Death is not. Death is not new. And it has a 100% batting average. Everyone has navigated food clothing, and shelter. Everyone has navigated work, marriage, and family. Everyone has navigated sickness, sex, and sadness. Everyone. There's nothing new. What you think is new is old. It's been around for a long time. The internet and technology has not healed a selfish heart yet. It has not delivered us from evil yet. 
It has not loved anybody yet. It has not redeemed one life yet. I told a group on Wednesday about a guy named Bud Hinkson who I completely adored. He's an incredible man and a remarkable leader. When I was doing campus ministry in the Eastern Bloc countries are just crumbling. He was the first to jump in there and lead a group of people to go in and start campus ministries, push, push the gospel onto the campus. He was a remarkable leader. I would have followed him anywhere. He was my kind of leader. He was a great guy. And at the height of the push, at the height of the gospel effectiveness, at the height of it all, he's on a freak bike accident and is killed. And I remember, I remember coursing through my veins. I was like, God, of all the people in this time, in this place, you take him. That makes no sense at all to me. If you don't mind me saying so, God, that is absolutely absurd. The third idea of vanity, first idea, everything's tired. Second idea is everything is frustrating, absurd. The third idea is everything is empty. It's unsatisfying. It's meaningless. Look at verse 8. A man cannot speak it. Well, what can he speak? What can words and thoughts not do, according to the preacher? Well, hold on, we're going to get there. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. So the eye sees, the eye is going after something. What is it going after and it can't get? According to the preacher, satisfaction. Well, then, what about the ear? The ear's, the ear's not even filled with hearing. So, our thinking and our speaking, or our words, our seeing or our eyes, and our hearing or our eyes, do not, according to the preacher, produce meaning. They do not, cannot generate satisfaction. So, in other words, what the preacher is saying is that even your human abilities and your human senses and everything about you, there's nothing in you that can pull life power out enough to fill you and complete you and satisfy you and bring you home. There's nothing under all the sun that has enough life power in it that if you grab it, it completes you and fills you. It's like a stream that runs into the ocean and it can't do it. It's like the wind that goes around and around and it never lands with an end. It's like the sun that goes up and goes down and goes up and goes down and what's its end and its purpose? I mean, that dancing English theologian, Mick Jagger, had it right. I can't get no. Notice what he says next. Though I try, man, though I try. Do you know, just because we know this, the preacher knows, even though we know, deep in our gut, we can't create happiness. We can't generate satisfaction. We can't fill our own souls. He knows we're going to keep trying, though. We're going to keep toiling. We're going to go around and around and around trying to get it. Utter disillusionment. Utter disappointment. All right, so what's the preacher's point? Good night. Whew. Let's move out of verse 2. Let's wrap this thing up. What's the preacher's point in all this? Everything's tired. Everything's 
fading, everything's falling apart, one. Everything's frustrating, everything's absurd, two. Everything's empty, it's unsatisfying, it's meaningless, three. Here's his first point. This is life in a fallen, wrecked world, period. This is your life. It doesn't matter if you're a skeptic and you're unchurched and you don't give a rip about God and you have no desire to pursue him, to know him, or anything to do with him. This is your life. It doesn't matter if you're a churchgoer and you believe and you're a strong Christian and you want to build your life around God. This is your life. It doesn't matter if you're cheating on your taxes or tithing to your church. This is your life. This is life for everyone. And wisdom says, face it. Wisdom says, open your eyes and look at it. Full front look. Wisdom says, unless you do, you will never, ever, ever be happy. Solid joys will slip through your fingers until you face the reality that this is your life. Isn't that ironic? That the only way we can actually begin to live a wise life and to live a life that has real solid joy in it is to recognize the life that we live is a wreck, a train wreck. We're calling this, if, we're, if you're able to do this, if we are able to take the preacher's words and, and look through the lens of what wisdom is, if we're able to say, it's a mad, mad world, and I'm a messed up, messed up person, if you're able to say that, you know what the preacher says? Welcome to life. Welcome to being a human being. Welcome to gutsy grace. Second, when the preacher says everything is vanity, he's really saying, he's saying everything is vanity except for the thing I'm saying right now about everything being vanity. I know, I know it's going to take a while to get this one. The preacher makes us think, and that's why it's, this is very, very difficult. Ecclesiastes scholar Zach Eswine says it this way. This might help. A neighbor who says, look, there's no absolute truth. Well, he's making an absolute truth statement, right? So that's kind of a contradiction Gently, pat, pat, right? When the preacher declares that all is vanity, he presumes to have stated a truth that is not in vain. The difference between him and a skeptic is that he knows he's a contradictor. He knows he's contradictory. See, a skeptic will say there's no absolute truth while saying there's an absolute truth that there's no absolute truth, but the skeptic doesn't see it. The wise man, the preacher, Seize it. In other words, hidden inside life is meaningless, life is vain, is the reality that there's something not. That there's something more to life under the sun. And because there's something more, there is more to your life under the sun now. 
And that switch, that sleight of hand, all the way in verse 2 and in 12.8, is the thrust of the whole book. The preacher is wanting to do this. He's wanting to say, look, you're going to have to trust me. Usually when you have a coin, people think it's either a, a, a double-headed side or a double-tail side. Life is horrible, so it's tails on both sides. Life is positive. It's heads on both sides. He says it's positive and negative. And I'm going to tear you down to build you up. He's a good drill sergeant. He's a good coach. He's a wise man. What is the more than life under the sun? Here's how we're going to end. I'm not going to give you, there's no spoilers here. We're going to have to figure it out as we go through the book together. So as he unfolds it, we're going to unfold it. But I got to give you a, a hint. I got to give you a shadow, if not the substance. Um, what's the more than life under the sun? It's someone who also is a son of David. Verse 1. It's someone who also is the wisest man who ever lived. Really. But this wise man that we're going to look at didn't cry out, everything is vanity. You know what he cried out? I am vanity. I'm fading or I'm thirsty. I'm falling apart. I am ultimate embodiment of frustration. My life is an absurdity. I am empty. I am poured out. He became ultimate vanity. So you and I never He took your place. So everything we're going to read about in this book, you got to push beyond the vanities to find the one who became the final and full vanity for you. And when you do, you will come alive with gutsy grace. When you do, you will get the message of the book. When you do, that is real life. So, God, we ask that you would do this. Good night. Please help us not make this be an intellectual exercise that we just gain a new understanding of a book that's really kind of confusing.